Puffy St. Marie. No, no, Keshagesh. Catch you next Monday morning at 9. KBU members, it's time once again to vote and make your voices heard. KBU's 2021 annual membership meeting and board election is coming up on Sunday, September 26th from 1 to 3 p.m., live streaming from the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. KBU members are invited to participate in a lively discussion on how to reconnect KBU's diverse communities after 18 months of the pandemic, the role of radio in the 21st century, and the upcoming celebration of our 54th anniversary. KBU depends on its members to help shape its operations and programming. So show your support by casting your vote and joining this community forum. Be sure to check your mailbox for your ballot and voting information. If you don't receive your ballot in the mail by September 13th, please contact the membership department or vote online at kbu.fm. Ballots cast by mail must be received by Friday, September 24th. The deadline to vote electronically is September 19th and will reopen during the annual meeting in lieu of voting in person. If you are not a member, you can become one today by going to kboo.fm and clicking the Join Now button. Again, that's KBU's 2021 annual membership meeting and board election on Sunday, September 26th from 1 to 3 p.m., live streaming from the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. More information about the annual meeting, candidate bios, and online voting forms can be found at kboo.fm slash meeting 2021. That's kboo.fm slash meeting 2021. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing, unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Finance Committee meets on the third Thursday of the month at 5 p.m please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. You're tuned in to KBOO Portland. Our fall membership drive is happening right now. During this drive, we're featuring content that examines democracy. Join us as programmers explore the sounds of democracy. You can help us in our continuous efforts to feature underserved voices by becoming a member of KBU Community Radio today. We're a non-commercial, independent community radio station supported by our members. Go to kboo.fm give or text kboo to 44321. You can also mail a check to KBU at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Welcome to The Food Show. I'm Emily Becker. Today, for International Day of Democracy, I speak with food system leaders about their work on policies to protect farmworker health, 
how the climate crisis is impacting water and farmers and the rights of nature. And we give you ideas of actions you can take. First up, we'll speak with Ira Cuyo Martinez of PECUN. PECUN is Oregon's farm worker union and is spelled P-C-U-N. PECUN has been pushing the state to protect workers from climate change impacts like extreme heat and wildfire smoke. Ira will give us all the details about the emergency rules released by the Oregon State Occupational Safety and Health Division in August, and also PECUN's work to get permanent rules to protect farm workers. Then, Karen Lewatsky of Oregon Environmental Council, OEC, joins me to talk about how the climate crisis is impacting our water supply and farms in Oregon. She shares about OEC's work to address climate change and how you can participate in our democracy through rulemaking processes happening in Salem. At the end of the show, Marisha Auerbach of Permaculture Rising joins us to chat about the rights of nature. What would democracy sound like if we incorporate more than just human voices? For International Day of Democracy, Marisha will give us a brief introduction to the rights of nature. You know what else is democratic? K-Boo. This community radio station relies on support from our members so that we can continue to bring you the valuable voices of your community. I hope that this program and others on KBU help you to be informed, participate more fully in our democracy, and take action to change institutions and systems to be just, equitable, and to care about our collective future. If you're able to, please help support KBU by becoming a member. Go to kboo.fm give or text KBOO to 44321. I'm joined by Ira Cuello Martinez of PECUN, Oregon's Farm Worker Union, to talk a little bit about how the climate crisis is impacting farm workers and the work they're doing to protect farm workers. Welcome, Ira. Thank you for having me. As you mentioned, my name is Ira Cuello Martinez. I use he, him, and el pronouns, and I am the Deputy Political Director at PECUN. Oregon's Farm Worker Union for over 36 years. PICUN is Spanish acronyms, which is Pineros y Campesinos Unidos del Noroeste. Um, so in English, that translates to uh, tree planters and farm workers united in the Northwest. So we want to talk a little bit about what's going on right now in Oregon with the climate crisis and the fires and the smoke and how that is impacting the people who are putting food on our tables. So tell us a little bit about what's actually happening. Yeah, so the climate crisis, I would say, is that farm workers are one of the first uh, communities to feel the impacts of the climate crisis. And specifically with wildfire smoke, uh, wildfires, and heat waves, um, these are some of the things, some of the extreme weather conditions we have been seeing over the last few years. Um, we all recall the wildfires that happened in September of 2020, and that really elevated the issue of, of farm workers not having the protections and also continuing to work under those conditions when there were evacuation zones in place, the air quality index levels were exceeding 500 to levels that we've never seen before. And this was such a new phenomenon to workers in the state of Oregon who had to finish up harvest season. We know that farm workers have a certain a seasonal time crunch to get through the harvest season, which is starting usually in May and ending in September. Many workers prefer to continue working because they know as soon as October hits, there are gonna be a lot less work opportunities due to the harvest season ending. And so farm workers continue to put their health and lives at risk and ensure that food makes it to people's tables, to the stores, to the restaurants, all while continuing to um, expose themselves to wildfire smoke, to excessive heat, like we've seen earlier this year, where unfortunately there was a farm worker who ended up dying. His name was Sebastian Francisco Perez. He was a farm worker in St. Paul who recently came to the United States to support his spouse back in Guatemala. And it's very unfortunate and sad to hear about these experiences because a, a lot of our community members are, are here to work and want to be a, a productive member of society. However, farm workers are one of the lowest wage workers in the country um, and have the, one of the most essential jobs 
as well as we've seen through the pandemic, through the wildfires, uh, through the heat waves, farm workers are still out there. And hearing from farm workers themselves, they feel like it's getting hotter. They feel more smoky and unhealthy air quality. And they are breathing it and not only breathing it at work, but then they go home and have to live through it um, through their low income housing as well. Uh, many times are not enough to protect them from wildfire smoke getting creeping into their uh, their housing, as well as uh, being able to afford air conditioning to combat some of these extreme weather conditions. And so I would say that's some of the more um, relevant and centered experiences that they face. Uh, and we're only expecting it to increase as we know climate, uh, the climate crisis is not going away. We're anticipating more frequent wildfires, more frequent heat waves. We saw a winter storm earlier this year that really took us by surprise. So there's, there is a multitude of things that farm workers have had to endure over the last year. And we really want to see some, some changes to protect the community members that we serve here at Pekun. What are some of those changes that you're trying to get in place? First and foremost, we want to see more protections, more workplace protections for farm workers. I remember distinctly last year um, when the wildfires began in early September, a lot of workers were using masks, but only cloth masks that they were using for the pandemic. They did not have the N95 respirators or the KN95 respirators to really protect them from exposure to wildfire smoke. Uh, and this was a huge concern for us because these workers are exposing their health um, and often don't have access to health care, either for their migration status, immigration status, or because it is very costly um, to afford health care. And so these workers were out there with minimal protections and no real um uh, tangible guidance from, from Oregon OSHA, the, the state agency who looks after safety and health um, in the workplace. Um, we actually sent them a letter when the wildfires were happening and orange red skies were in clear. We sent Oregon OSHA a letter asking that there are some rules, some emergency rules implemented um, that will help enforce employers to protect and look after these workers, whether it be ending the work a day earlier, uh, shifting their responsibilities to areas that isn't as impacted by the wildfire smoke, um, and providing those N95 or KN95 respirators. Unfortunately, we did not see uh, any emergency rules last September of 2020. Um, rather, we got some guidance for employers to follow, but those guidances are not enforceable. Um, they are not required, and so it's really up to the employer whether or not they want to follow the guidance that Oregon OSHA placed. And there was an executive order that Governor Brown signed in March of 2020, about a week prior to the pandemic happening. And within this executive order, they directed Oregon OSHA to work with the Oregon Health Authority to help uh, develop some rules and standards to protect workers from not only wildfire smoke, but also excessive heat. And so this is something that Oregon OSHA was tasked with doing um, and finalizing at the end of June of 2021. However, given the pandemic happening, the timeline had to be pushed back until um, later in the fall of 2021. Um, so this process actually began in March of 2021, a year after the executive order was signed. And within this process, stakeholders, including worker advocates, public health experts, um, uh, environmental groups, and employer representatives were all um, talking through what uh, language or protections we would like to see for farm workers and for all workers who are impacted by these extreme weather conditions, including outdoor workers, as well as other folks and workers who are in non-climate controlled uh, work settings and thinking about warehouse workers or folks who have their doors opening and closing throughout the day. Um, and so these are some of the protections and things that we want to see uh, finalized and developed. 
we knew that this process wasn't going to end until after uh, the summer, after these extreme weather conditions usually take place. So we actually asked Oregon OSHA around their plan to adopt emergency rules for this summer of 2021, um, knowing that it's going to be another hot year. There's droughts happening across the state and the conditions for wildfire smoke to spread were, were present. We did not see any emergency rules uh, adopted until about 10 days after Sebastian Francisco Perez died due to heat stress. And so that was what really prompted the agency to take urgent action and develop these protections. These happened and were adopted on July 8th, and we waited until August 1st to see a similar emergency rule adopted for exposure to wildfire smoke. We would have loved to have seen these emergency rules in June, in May. Um, however, fortunately, we, we have them now uh, as we continue working through the permanent rulemaking process, which is set to be concluded later this fall. Can you just give us a little bit more detail about what's actually in the emergency rules and what will hopefully be in the final actual policy? And then how does that get enforced? Yeah, so within the heat standard, the emergency heat standard that was passed, there are a couple of things. It's actually one of the strongest in the country, if not the strongest the standard right now in the country. Um, and this is because Oregon has a high heat standard that's activated at 90 degrees and the regular heat standards activated at 80 degrees versus when you look at Washington state where they also adopted an emergency rule, their, their heat standards don't get activated until 100 degrees. And within California, their high heat standard isn't activated until 95 degrees and their regular heat standards activated at 80 degrees. So Oregon uh, is really um, leading the nation with their heat standard. And within the heat standard, at the 80 degree threshold, employers must provide workers with access to potable uh, water that's fresh and cool, access to shade for all of their workers, as well as training on the uh, dangers of heat stress, um, identifying heat illness and heat symptoms, and and making sure that they are aware of the rules that exist to protect them. Once the 90 degree threshold is activated, the high heat standards are kicked in, and that includes an additional 10 minute break every two hours to help cool down the body once it reaches and exceeds 90 degrees. They also have um, a buddy system that's required or a way for employers to ensure that they're observing all of their workers and making sure no one is um, demonstrating any symptoms of heat illness or heat injury. Uh, in the case of Sebastian Francisco Perez, this rule would have protected and prevented him from dying because in his uh, situation, he was working by himself in high heat, uh, over 90 degrees. I believe in St. Paul where he died at the farm, it reached highs of 103 degrees that day during the heat wave. And so if these rules were in place ahead of that, uh, ahead of his death, it would have been avoided and prevented. The last um, piece with the high heat standard is that they have to have an emer emergency medical plan in place and ready to be activated once someone is experiencing heat stress or heat illness. Um, and so some, those are some of the things that exist within the heat rule. Um, and a little bit about the smoke rule is that employers will now be uh, required to um, provide N95 or KN95 masks and respirators to workers. And so once the AQI threshold, the air quality index threshold reaches 101 um, uh, level, then workers have the opportunity to use a respirator at voluntary basis. Once the threshold reaches 200 uh, air quality index, then they are required to use it and employers must ensure that the seams are fitted enough that wildfire smoke isn't able to enter um, through, through the respirator. And then the last threshold uh, within the new emergency smoke rule is that um, a full respirator program needs to be um, implemented 
once AQI levels exceed 500, uh, which is what we saw in September of 2020. So that's a little bit about um, the rules that exist. In both cases, trainings have to be offered. In both cases, there is language around retaliation protection because that's another area of issue that we see uh, when it comes to farm workers and ensuring that the rules are enforced. Oregon OSHA has expressed to us that they've increased their number of in inspectors uh, that are looking after the enforcement of these rules. And we want to ensure that, we also wanna see a strong enforcement of the heat and smoke standards. Um, so we've set up a way for workers to communicate with our office and so that we can uh, follow up with them and support them in the best way that they need support in, whether it is to submit a complaint to Oregon OSHA for us to talk to their employers or to mobilize their folks and call out employers who continue to place farm workers at risk for their health and their lives. So the heat and the smoke rules, will they be separate or will they be one policy together? So the rules themselves are separate. Um, so they there's an individual rule for excessive heat and there's an individual rule for wildfire smoke. And the way that these meetings to create the rules are structured is we'll talk about excessive heat for the first half and then transition over to wildfire smoke for the second half. They are very distinct and I think it makes sense to keep them separate, but we know that they're interrelated issues. We know that they are becoming more frequent as a result of the climate crisis that we're facing. Um, and so I'm glad that we are addressing them both at the same time, despite having separate uh, rulemaking themselves. Well, thanks so much for all of this work that you're doing and that Pekun's doing to support and protect farm workers. Is there any way that our listeners can support your work? Definitely. So there's a couple ways that um, listeners and supporters can support the work that Pekun is doing. Uh, first, I ask that you all follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It is Pekun Oregon uh, for the handles on Twitter and on Instagram. And there you can you can uh, sign a pledge to ensure that Oregon OSHA adopts strong and enforceable rules for heat and smoke. And there's also a pledge to support farm worker overtime, which is something that we're also advocating for at the state legislative level to ensure farm workers have strong wages and are not placing their health and lives at risk because of their limited and the constraints with their economic well-being. The second thing folks can do is sponsor a, a farm worker through our membership program and pay for their membership so that they can become members of Bikun, receive the services and support from our office, and also be able to participate in our annual convention, which helps dictate what policy priorities we have for the following year. So those are the two ways that folks are able to support Bikun. You can find more information on our website as well, which is bikun.org or follow us on our social media handles to receive more information and updates. That's great. Thanks so much, Ira. Thank you for having me and for talking about farm worker issues. That was Ira Cuyo Martinez, Deputy Political Director of Pekun. You can find links to the emergency rules and more info about Pekun on the Food Show website kboo.org slash foodshow. And while you're there, click on that big red donate button at the top and show kboo some love. Next up, we have Karen Lewatsky from the Oregon Environmental Council. Karen is the Rural Partnerships and Water Policy Director. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Emily. I'm glad to be here today. I'm really excited to have you on the show today because Oregon Environmental Council is doing some really excellent work working to protect our environment here in the state and has a big emphasis on incorporating a lot of voices in that work in order to change policy. And today it's Democracy Day on KBU, and so I'm super excited to be able to talk about the climate, be able to talk about food systems, and be able to talk about how our democracy works and how people can get involved. So Karen, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at uh, Oregon Environmental Council. Um, well, you're right. I wear two hats. One of them is the water policy director. And under that hat, 
I work on usually state level water policy issues that um, move through the legislature or move through agency rulemaking. It all sounds, I'm sure, kind of tedious, but it's really the important nuts and bolts of government and how we use our governmental system to kind of manage our water resources. And then my other hat is that I'm the director of our Rural Partnerships Program. We conceived of that program to let us be sure that we ground ourselves in a statewide perspective. We don't wanna just represent Portland or the Northern Willamette Valley. We wanna hear what's important to folks in other parts of the state and where we can make sure that we incorporate those needs, those concerns, those perspectives into the policies that we're trying to put forward in Salem so that we end up with good, strong policies that can work across the state for a variety of people. We're talking about the climate crisis and food systems and Obviously, water is very critical to the food we eat and to farmers and to the fish we eat. Tell us a little bit about your work around how the climate crisis is impacting our water supply. Well, the climate crisis can be seen on a couple of different timescales. In the more short-term, immediate timescale, because of shifts in atmospheric circulation and all those things, um, we're seeing shifts in rainfall, shifts in precip patterns, places where we would expect to get water aren't getting water. Um, places where we would expect to get snowpack are getting rain instead. All of those things shift around what water is available to not only farmers and ranchers, but uh, native tribes that have fish species that they're cultivating. Um, municipalities that need drinking water resources. Everybody's being impacted by that kind of shift. Um, I've read uh, in a report recently that they're postulating that we in Portland will have Sacramento's climate in only a few decades, right? That's gonna be really different for us. So water availability, water timing, all of those things are shifting around. What that means is the systems we have in place for dealing with water, moving it around, making sure there's enough here or enough there when we need it, um, are not gonna be working properly. That, that machinery is gonna start skipping and not properly functioning for us. You say it in such a calm and measured way. <laughs> and my little heart is just panicking, like, I don't want to live in Sacramento. <laughs> yeah, neither do I, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> Although I did just buy my first citrus tree. So maybe, maybe my little kumquats will be super happy in a decade. There you go. There you go. Those little things are good, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So when we look at all of those changes that are happening to our precip patterns, we're going to see shifts in what food production can do. I was over in the Palouse, which is kind of the northwestern high desert plains where we grow peas and lentils and wheat. And I was driving by fields that were absolutely burned up, right? There was just nothing growing. The farmers were going to harvest them to use as forage for cattle instead of being able to get a pea harvest or a lentil harvest that would be food for people to eat, right? So we're gonna start losing certain kinds and certain areas of agriculture as those water patterns shift. Other areas may come forward. We don't really know how that's gonna play out yet, but it's gonna change things a lot. And another thing that will change um, will be how, how we deal with pest pressures. Precipitation has a lot to do with what kind of pests, bugs, fungus, all those sorts of things. What kind of pests a crop will have? If you have very damp soil, you might have a fungus or you might have little worms that eat the roots. If you have a very dry soil, you're not gonna be able to uptake your nutrients. So the crop will, will vary in its response to those problems. And as climate change affects all of our precipitation patterns, it's gonna affect all of our cropping systems. You mentioned the peas that you've seen. What other ways do you see the climate changes impacting our food system right now? Well, you can drive through uh, a number of places, like I said, in Oregon, and see fields that are completely fallow. There's nothing growing. 
there would usually be something growing there, but there's not enough water for the seeds to grow. Not only are there not enough water for this year's seeds, but there's not enough moisture in the ground to make it worthwhile planting seeds for next year. That means you've got two years of fallow on this ground, meaning nothing's growing but weeds. Um, the other thing that's not growing is the farmer's livelihood. There's no income, right? So not only is it threatening the crop, but it's also threatening the people who raise the crop. How long can they stay there as farmers when they're not having any crop to harvest? So I think when, when we at OEC think about working on climate change, we're not just thinking about how much do you drive, that's an important thing, or you know how much greenhouse gases are emitted those are important things, but we're also thinking about what's gonna happen to the quality and the nature of our lives as they currently exist when these changes continue to accelerate, when you've got wildfires, you know, when you have nothing to feed the cattle because there's no hay to harvest, you know, it's an ongoing challenge. So I feel like you've done a really great job just setting up kind of what we're going to be facing, um, but I know Oregon Environmental Council is doing a lot of work to try to change that and to try to see what we can do to make it not so bad. Um, so can you tell us <laughs> a few things that you're working on to address those issues? Well, certainly in the water world, um, some of the things that we're working on is of course, helping with the implementation of the governor's executive order making sure that the water agencies are involved in coming up with some solutions, being part of the answer to some of the changes that need to be made in a management way with water um, in response to our climate issues. But I think more directly, we've been doing some work, for example, um, helping uh, irrigation districts get enough funding to put their water not in an open canal that leaks and evaporates, but putting it into a pressurized pipe and delivering that water under pressure to the various farms. That, that does two things for us. One, it puts water back in the stream for fish and for other in-stream uses, right? Because we, we, we aren't losing it. The other thing it does is by delivering that water under pressure to the farm, if that farmer has been able to invest in modernized irrigation equipment, there's enough pressure coming through that pipe that they don't need to use electricity to run their um, irrigation equipment. Instead, that pressure can actually push the water through. So not only have you saved water and conserved water, saving it meaning saving it and putting back in the river, conserved meaning using less, but you're also cutting down on the amount of electricity that you're using, right? Which is another positive. So we kind of gained two things there, working on that. We've also been talking with a variety of people about how do you think about the lowering groundwater tables across our state? There are many places like Harney Basin where um, we just were that uh, we were out there visiting uh, Representative Mark Owens at his farm. Um, they're watching their groundwater drop lower and lower and lower so that there isn't enough water to pull up and water the plants. And that's for the farmers. The same aquifer that the farmers tap into to pull water for the hay that they're growing that's the aquifer that a domestic well uses as well. So not only is agriculture suffering, but there are people who are like, hey, I can't take a shower from April until October. There's just not enough water pressure. Um, so we're watching those groundwater systems affect not only agriculture, but also domestic rural wells, um, which is scaring a lot of people. You have to have water brought in in a truck. You have to go buy those plastic containers. You know, that's, that's, people are looking at their lives and they're going, wow, things are really, this is scary. Things are really changing and shifting. What can we do? And that leads to another really positive trend that we're seeing, which is the idea of place-based planning, <clears throat> where folks in a particular region and folks 
a wide variety of stakeholders, a very inclusive process that the Oregon um, Water Resources Department has been piloting for state-based planning, where all of those stakeholders come together, identify their problems, identify their needs, and together try to come up with some solutions so that they can give a plan to the Water Resources Department. Here's how we're gonna do it in our basin to make it better. It lets people feel involved, it lets them feel committed, it lets them feel that they have a voice in determining their future. And sometimes it means we make better decisions because we're using local information. In those place-based planning meetings, uh, what kinds of solutions are people bringing forward for how to deal with lower rates of water? Wow, those meetings, those meetings take a long time to evolve to the point of making recommendations. You've probably heard that old saying about um, you can only move at the speed of trust. You're bringing people historically together who maybe had very, very different expectations or wants. You're bringing tribal representatives, you're bringing agriculture, you're bringing municipalities, people with a lot of different agendas coming together. There needs to be enough time for people to be free, feel comfortable expressing their concerns, feeling heard. So you've got that whole process of inclusion, of community outreach, building that. Then is when questions start coming about what can we do? Um, and you can hear people coming up with some really innovative things. How do we create a fund that's gonna help farmers buy more efficient irrigation equipment? How do we support domestic well users who don't have enough water? People are looking for answers, but it's a very slow process. These in Harney Basin, where I was just mentioning that we were at, um, they've been working on it since, what, 2017. It's just a slow process. One of the ideas might be, can we pay farmers to quit pumping, right? Just retire them from becoming people who use water to raise crops and see if there's not an alternative to that. You know, can they grow natural vegetation that cattle can graze on? Can they just grow natural vegetation and allow the land to return to what it once was? If they do that, what happens to their livelihood? How do we take care of them? Right? These are these are delicate questions to ask when you're talking to someone who says, gosh, my family's been here for four generations and you want me to stop? That's a hard that's a hard conversation. You know, so again, that moving at the speed of trust, the listening, really hearing what people are saying. It's so important that you're doing that work now because I think for a lot of people out there, there's a real sense of urgency continue to take that time to actually come up with solutions that are going to work and be long lasting and have an impact despite feeling a great sense of urgency is very important to continue to do. A lot of these processes are ones that happen in a particular place. A lot of what OEC does is work in Salem with the agencies with the legislators to ensure that we have programs that allow for this kind of work to get done, right? So we work a lot um, making sure that there's adequate funding. Does DEQ and, and the Water Resources Department have enough money to actually do the job we need them to do so these place-based planning efforts can be successful? If they can't be successful because the policy and the programs aren't working properly, not only will they not be successful, but because they fail, that will keep people from wanting to come back to the table. If it falls apart, it's like, well, the heck with it. We tried once, we're not gonna do that again, right? So we need to be really thoughtful about how we do this. We're lucky because this last legislative session, we got quite a bit of unexpected money uh, that we've been able to put towards water work and that includes everything from infrastructure, so helping to put in place new water systems um, for various communities where water's, water delivery systems are failing. That would include warm springs, for example, where 
the city or the town of Warm Springs has had a failing water system for a long time, but not the resources to help do something about that. Money that's coming in can, can go to help them, right? Rebuild that. There's money that's gonna be able to go to Business Oregon um, who can give out loans for things that are built on natural infrastructure, right? You know, natural infrastructure, uh, they're artificial wetlands, like the ones out in Prineville. Have you ever been there out by the Crooked River? It's beautiful, it. it's beautiful. Um, but what it is, is about oh, 20 acres of constructed wetlands with paths through it. The local schools put up information boards and keep it updated. People go jogging and running, but it's also the way that they do the final treatment on their wastewater to cool it down enough so it can go into the river without hurting the fish, right? Those kind of projects are really innovative and really interesting. They're not always easy to fund. But with this money that's coming in, Business Oregon can make loans to municipalities to build systems like that, which I think goes a lot further than building another cooling tower. We're working with nature. We're using natural systems to help achieve our goals. So the money that's coming in works for that. What are some more examples of those um, natural infrastructure projects? Oh, you got me on one of my favorite topics here. Well, natural infrastructure can do a lot of things. In that case, it's helping to cool wastewater before it goes into a river so that it meets water quality standards. There are possibilities for using natural infrastructure to ensure that you have clean drinking water. There are communities on the coast like Astoria and Arch Cape is looking into this, where the community will actually buy the forested watershed that their drinking water comes from. And they will manage it in such a way that sediment doesn't run off, that pesticides don't get in the water. So as that water flows down into their intake for the drinking water, they don't have to do as much pretreatment on it right? Because none of those bad things are there. In the case of Astoria, they're managing their forest not only to protect the drinking water, but also to sequester carbon. And so they are making money off of carbon credits. And when it's time to harvest some of those trees, because harvest is part of management, right? Those trees can be sold and that can bring in revenue for the city. That's a really tidy package. Plus, if you do it right, you've got hiking trails, so you've got people getting out, moving around, more public health, more mental health. I know it helps me to get out and hike, right? So that's one example from the drinking water end of it. Um, a lot of people are looking at how do we deal with flooding, right? So here in Portland, they've restored a stretch of Johnson Creek, which used to be just straight funneled. They've Put into uh, the city of Portland put into place a program where homeowners were given their fair market value for their homes and they were relocated and then that whole stretch of the creek was actually put back into the same meanders that it had been in right so now when it floods there's all that vegetation there's all that meandering that helps slow down the water helps absorb the water. So instead of gushing into people's basements and flowing into businesses, which happened repeatedly out there, now what's happening is the water is slowed down. It's gonna be a little bit of flooding. There's gonna be water in the street, no doubt about that. But what's not gonna happen is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of insurance claims for flooded property damage, right? So that's another example of how natural infrastructure can work. That's so interesting. I didn't know that about Johnson Creek. It's really cool. Yeah. It's out, uh, yeah, you can look it up and it's a fun little hike to walk around. I think you probably hear this question a lot. What can individual people do and what can we as a state do to help you in this work to conserve and save water for our own uses and for our farmers and for our fish friends and every everyone else who needs water? Well, the classic response is, what, take one less shower a week? No, I'm teasing. Um, don't do that. I think really what we need to get our minds around, all of us, is how do we, 
how do we think in a coordinated manner about our water management? Right now, we have agencies that are in charge of water quality, agencies that are in charge of how much water is in the river, agencies that are in charge of how much water is in the river for fish. All those things are important. They need to be more carefully coordinated so that they're all working together. And how that happens is people on the ground vote, people on the ground write their legislators, people on the ground become members of OEC and help us move these issues forward in Salem. And then when those programs hit the ground, you get involved in your own community. You know what your water system's like. You know what your drinking water report read last year. And you think about how are these things affecting my life? And what can I do in my community to make sure that not just my house, but everybody's house, all neighborhoods are protected and have good, clean drinking water? That's a good start. It does sound like a good start. Are there any kind of easy actions or any work that OEC is doing right now, especially around policy because it's democracy day, everybody's gonna get involved. <laughs> is there anything you, you can share about things that people can do right now today? There are a number of rulemakings going on uh, in Salem right now. A number of the agencies have been asked by the governor to implement certain kinds of rulemakings around things that are going to reduce the negative impacts of climate change, right? Those rulemakings are actually public. People can comment. You can download those rules. You can look at them and you can write a comment. You can say, I think this should be different, right? I would like to see something else happen. We at OEC send out various newsletters, various blogs, et cetera, to help people understand some of those challenges, to help them figure out what they might wanna say to somebody about it. But that's really what democracy is about, is stepping forward and saying, I'm willing to participate. I'm gonna take time in my life to be part of this, to make the whole better by my individual actions. That, that would be my plug for Democracy Day. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Karen. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was Karen Lewatsky, Rural Partnerships and Water Policy Director of the Oregon Environmental Council. You can find out more about their work at oeconline.org. And if you want to attend the Climate Protection Program rulemaking session, they are being held virtually on September 22nd and 30th. I've put a link to the DEQ's rulemaking page on the episode page. Go to kboo.org foodshow and click on the show. Next up is Marisha Auerbach, our food show permaculture expert and all around amazing human here to share some time with us and some thoughts about the rights of nature. Today is the start of our fall membership drive. The theme is the sounds of democracy. And we thought it would be great to talk a little bit about what democracy sounds and feels like when we're not just talking about people. So welcome to the food show, Marisha. Thanks, Emily. I'm so glad to be back here with you. What are the rights of nature? What does that mean? The rights of nature refers to an international movement that has been growing to recognize that species and ecosystems are not just resources to be exploited for human need, but they need to be recognized as living entities with rights of their own. This is contrary to corporate rights, where corporations are given the ability to exploit natural resources. This often causes some harm on the communities in the areas where this is happening. And the rights of nature movement recognizes that we live on an interdependent and interconnected planet. And when we exploit natural resources, there are often hidden costs that reflect on the stability of our local bioregions, the health of the people who live there, and the health of the general ecosystem in that area. Can you give an example? Sure. A great example of the rights of nature in action happened in Western Ohio, where 
Uh, I'm from Ohio. I grew up in the northeastern Ohio outside of Cleveland. And the citizens of the area around Toledo, Ohio, were unable to drink their water because there was a lot of pollution going into Lake Erie. And they were really concerned. I mean, we all should be concerned if we're unable to drink our drinking water. So the citizens of this area decided to learn from the rights of nature movement that had happened in many other places around the world. And they advocated for the rights of Lake Erie to be free from pollution. And they won their case in court and they protected their drinking water for their community. There's a really great video on this. It's on my YouTube channel under the playlist on permaculture videos. It was put out by Vox. You can find it on YouTube if anyone wants to look deeper on that. To a lot of people, when you say, yeah, we're going to give ecosystems or we're going to give a body of water rights, I think that sounds pretty far-fetched to a lot of people. But then when you think about that corporations have the same kind of rights, you know, that also seems very far-fetched, but it is what's happening now. And so when you, you see these like concrete examples of the way people implement the rights of nature, it can be a lot easier to understand. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why it's difficult to vocalize about it because we've been in this capitalist culture for so long where you know, people's primary thing is that we're supposed to be consuming and not thinking about how our consumption patterns affect the stability of the earth. And so the rights of nature is this inspiring, uh, growing movement. And it's interesting to look at which cultures around the world have more literacy in being able to talk about this. I read this book called Sustainability and the Rights of Nature in Practice that was an assignment that I was given because I review university textbooks. And I was so inspired by reading all these different case studies of places around the world, like Bhutan and Australia and India. And in Ecuador, they actually have recognized the rights of nature nationally, and they've been adopted into their constitution. So here in the United States, where we have a more capitalist society than many of the other countries in the world, we have a long way to go in being able to develop our language to be able to talk about this and understand this concept. But I think for most people in our hearts, we know that when pollution happens from industry, that that is not right. So how do we band together as a citizenry to be able to advocate for the health in our communities and the health of the bioregion? And as we're looking at, you know, anthropomorphic climate change, which is, you know, climate change is caused by people, by our consumption of a lot of fossil fuels, as well as other resources. You know, we live in this global market where we often don't see the hidden costs on our consumption. And looking at the rights of nature is one way that we can address climate change by starting to, you know, come down from being humans as the ones that monopolize the world, but to see ourselves as another species in this interdependent planet. So this is all really exciting, and I'm sure people want to learn more about the rights of nature and, you know, think about how they can get involved locally or maybe not locally. Can you share some resources with us? Well, I think there's a lot of people that are talking about the rights of nature movement on YouTube, and that's a really great place to learn about the experience of people in other countries since it's so much more advanced in other places. There's a full-length film that people can watch on YouTube. It focuses a lot on the movement in Ecuador where the rights of nature is now adopted into their constitution and tells the story of how that happened. I think it also looks at some of the projects in India and uh, it also highlights this project that I mentioned earlier in Ohio. Locally in Portland, we have a man in our community who is a fabulous advocate for community rights and in the advocating for community rights, his organization also advocates for the rights of nature. And so that's the Oregon Community Rights Network, which is at orcrn.org. So that's a great local um, way to get involved. And I think that as 
people begin to learn about this movement, you know, watch a video or find an article online. There's also the rightsofnature.org is a great website to start out with, with learning about the rights of nature. And I think one of the best things we can do is just try to understand what this is and then talk to our friends and family about it. See how people feel, you know, cause we all live in these interconnected environments. And I think now as we're feeling the effects of climate change, we need to be talking to our community to talk about how we're feeling about this. How is this impacting us? How is it impacting the people we love? You know, in that way we can share about people that we know that are not necessarily in Oregon. You know, my sister was just greatly affected by hurricane. My sister's in New York, and so she gets affected by different weather than we do. My brother's in LA, and so it's, you know, they've been really dry for a long time, you know, and so the more that we talk to people both about local issues, about national issues, and about our own personal issues, then we can build the vocabulary for being able to advocate for nature's rights. And I think that's really the first step since it is so different from uh, what we know about political process in the United States. Quite frankly, often political process in our country is really disheartening. A lot of people feel like they give it their shot and it's not, their voices aren't heard. So, you know, let's look to something different because the corporate hegemony is just really not working. You know, it's causing a lot of people to feel disenchanted and unmotivated or unempowered to have their voices be heard. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Marisha. We'll have those websites and resources linked on the Food Show's website, which is kboo.org slash food show. And we'll talk to you next month. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Emily. I really appreciate you giving the space for talking about things like this. asking people, what food issues are important to you? It's amazing to be part of a community radio station where I can hear directly from our listeners and build episodes based on what you care about. If you have an idea for the food show or want to record a segment, please reach out to foodshow at kboo.org. Kboo is commercial-free, volunteer-powered radio made possible by people like you. Did you know that 80% of KBOO's funding comes from our members? We'd love to have you join us by becoming a member at kboo.fm give or text KBOO to 44321. Thanks for listening to our International Day of Democracy episode with Pekun, Oregon Environmental Council, and Permaculture Rising. Visit the Food Show website to find links, resources, and ways to take democratic action. On the website, you can also hear this show and past episodes. And you can find The Food Show wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow at PDX Food Show for updates, actions, and more about your local food system. Thanks for listening.
You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Where the Tune in this Friday, September 17th from 5.30 to 7 a.m. for a special fall membership drive edition of the Cascadia Coffee House, where we celebrate the 111th Pendleton Roundup happening this week with a morning of folk music from the American West. The Pendleton Roundup is a week-long celebration of Western heritage and community spirit that centers on one of the largest outdoor, non-commercial rodeos and is a treasured Oregon tradition. Again, that's this week's Cascadia Coffee House on Friday, September 17th, from 5.30 to 7 a.m., right here on KBOO. See you then, and let her buck. Let her buck.